0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're continuing in the series Associations in the Greco-Roman World. Last time we talked about associations in the city and saw how associations and guilds were participants within the city and also active in relating to civic officials. Today we turn to the broader picture of imperialism. How did associations relate to Roman authorities, both the emperors and provincial, and local Roman imperial officials. After briefly discussing previous approaches to this question of how associations relate to the Roman authorities, after deconstructing some common ideas that associations were in constant tension with Roman authorities, we finally go on to more of the inscriptional evidence we have that shows how associations were participants in honors for the emperors we will begin by considering the question of honors for the emperors and for Roman Imperial officials that do not involve cultic honors, that do not involve giving sacrifices to the emperors as though they are gods. Some Judean and some Christian groups were participants in honors for the emperors and for Roman Imperial officials without recognizing those figures as gods. But after we deal with associations participating within those types of honors, we turn to a second quite important type of honors, and that is cultic honors for the emperors specifically. In other words, some associations, though not Judeans and Christians, participated in sacrifices to the emperors as gods, treating the emperors as gods within a small group context. And so that's one of the important distinctions between many of the other associations, on the one hand, and these monotheistic Judean and Christian groups on the other, that although they share in common other practices, this is one distinction, namely the lack of recognition of the emperors as gods on the part of Judeans and Christians. And so we'll see that as we progress in this discussion of associations and imperialism today. The thing about Roman imperialism is that um, it's obviously not a separate thing from civic life by the time we're in our period here. Imperial related activities, imperial things are integrated as well, that they're integrated within civic life in places like the cities of Asia Minor. So, in a way, we're studying even further, to some degree, associations in civic life when we ask the question of how do associations relate to or fit in relationship to the imperial power. I need to say a few words about common scholarly views about associations in relation to the empire. Scholars have previously focused mainly on literary evidence and have paid less attention to epigraphic and archaeological evidence. The result of that on the issue of how do the associations relate to the Roman imperialism has been that the scholars have been looking at literature that shows incidences of negative relations between Roman governors or Roman rulers and associations. In other words, they tell stories about when associations are put out of business more often in literature than they tell about all the rest of the times when the associations just go on living their normal lives without being bothered at all by Roman authorities. And some of the evidence regarding this uh, that's worth at least giving you an example of are the letters of Cicero. So Cicero is a politician in Rome in the Republican period just before the empire is formed, but already it's an empire in the sense that Rome has extended its power in the first century BCE already has a hundred years of controlling Asia Minor for example right? So Cicero is in the mid first century BCE but he's somewhat representative of these negative relations that I just want to draw your attention to that have been the focus and, 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 and other things have been left to the side and you also need to interpret Cicero in a particular manner there are several of his letters and writings that refer to collegia to associations Scholars have focused primarily on the negative ones that have totally ignored, even within literature, have totally ignored his positive statements that, that sort of reveal the true nature of the relationship between Roman authorities, Roman imperial authorities, and these sorts of groups, which is really a mixed relation, is what I'm going to point out, both positive and negative. But what scholars have focused on is the negative to the exclusion, of these positive relations. So, for example, quite a few of Cicero's writings, when he refers to Collegia, assume that they're trouble causers. And he's thinking primarily of political trouble for him. Remember, he's a politician, and at certain times he's a consul, struggling with other politicians in Rome for power. You know, other people have that position when he's not in that position. And he has political wranglings with these people. And the association should be understood within that context. Let me read to you one section here, writing for Cestius. He's defending Cestius in a legal sort of way within a court case. And in that context, he refers to some incidents that have happened back in 58 BCE. In the presence and sight of these same consuls, a levy of slaves was held before the tribunal of Aurelius. Under pretense of filling up the guilds, when men were enrolled according to their streets and divided into decur- decurions and stirred up violence and battle and slaughter and plunder. So there's one of these incidents where he's saying when associations are formed, you end up with violence, battle, slaughter, and plunder. Let me read you another passage from the same uh, writing. For some laws were passed while those consuls, shall I say, were silent, respecting them. Yes, rather while they actually proved of them. Laws that the notice of the censors, officials, and the most important decisions of the most holy magistrates should be abolished. That not only those ancient guilds, collegia, which had existed before should be restored in defiance of the resolution of the Senate, but that innumerable new guilds should be established in the process. So here he's talking about another politician reversing a senatorial decree the senatorial decree said associations should be put out of business, they're trouble causers, and another politician favoring associations and actually encouraging them to form. We're beginning to see that depending on the politician and the time period, associations might be viewed positively by a Roman authority, a Roman official, and negatively by a Roman official. Here's another of his writings. Not only the guilds, collegia, which the Senate had abolished, were restored, but countless new ones were established, of all the dregs of the city and even of slaves." Again, a negative characterization of other people actually facilitating Roman authorities, facilitating the formation of associations, because those associations support that Roman official. Why is Cicero saying negative things about them? Because those associations don't support him. But let me show you when cicero says wonderful things about associations when they support him Here cicero's talking about what happened in relation to him cicero has been in exile because he had political problems with some of the other rulers he has he had to go into exile he has now returned and he's referring to the sort of welcome he gets there was no municipal town in all italy no colony no prefecture no company of men concerned in farming the public revenues, no guild or council, no public body, in short, of any kind whatever, which had not passed most honorable resolutions concerning my safety, when all on a sudden the two consuls issue a decree that the senators are to return to their former dress. So here he's talking about Collegia supporting him. So his brother, uh, another sister of his brother, wrote a handbook on electioneering. A handbook on how to be a Roman politician. And in the midst of this, this is what he says. Draw to yourself senators, Roman knights, active and influential men of other ranks. So there's the first tip on how to be a good Roman politician. Make friends with other senators and equestrians that are that infinitesimal percentage of the population that have the Roman imperial power, right? Then reckon up the whole city, he says. All the collegia, the association, the wards, the neighborhoods, the hills. If you strike a friendship with the leading men from among their number, you will easily, through them, secure the masses that remain. So here is the brother of Cicero giving advice on needing to get the associations on your side to be good politician. So the question of whether or not Roman authorities are for or against associations, the best way of thinking about it is Well, which associations? What is the time period? What is that particular politician trying to do at that time and maybe they'll support associations and maybe they'll try and put them out of business. Are the associations supporting his political enemy? He'll probably tr- talk about the being bad and try and have them put out of business, etc. So we have many, many examples, that's just, I use Cicero to illustrate it, of Roman authorities passing a decree or trying to have others pass decrees to try and put collegia associations out of business but those same politicians supporting the formation of associations if it's to their own political betterment. So it's better for us to say that Roman authorities are not consistently against associations. There are times when they're suspicious of them because of the political ability of these associations to cause trouble for a particular politician. There are times when the whole Senate passes a decree to try and put out of business associations for a certain period of time however they continue to exist and come back into existence afterwards and there's other times where politicians are encouraging the formation of associations we have besides that though besides that literary evidence of intermittent negative relations between Roman authorities and associations we have plenty of evidence from the association side that shows that associations themselves in cities of Asia Minor sought to place themselves positively in relationship with Roman authorities. First, let me say something about connections between associations and imperial elites for benefaction. We have examples of many, many associations seeing Roman imperial officials at different levels of the Roman imperial system as benefactors. In other words, a Roman official giving money to an association to have their festivals to build a new building both Roman imperial officials at the local civic level and the more important ones like the Roman governor like Pliny the Younger we don't have the inscriptions involving him but we have other Roman governors at the exact same level as him who are honored by associations so we have these sort of social network connections within the honor system where associations have direct relationship with all kinds of Roman imperial officials in a positive way that includes Judean groups and potentially Christian groups. Our problem with Christian groups is just how scant our evidence is for archaeology. Basically, we have no evidence, archaeologically, that's discernibly Christian until about 200 CE. What's interesting is that within the Christian literature, the only evidence we do have before 200, we have mixed messages. We have some Christian authors advocating positive relations with Roman authorities, which would imply that some Christian groups did have similar connections to Roman imperial authorities that we see with these other associations, some positive relationships. For example, Paul's letter to the Romans. He's writing just a regular letter to a group of Jesus followers in about 55 CE. Paul, this Judean who believed Jesus is the Judean Messiah, is writing to them. And this is what he says, this is his, what he teaches the Jesus followers in the places he goes. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So the Roman imperial authorities have been instituted by God in the language of this writing here. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. Let me read 1 Peter, another author who incidentally, just by chance, reveals to us that he has a somewhat positive view of honoring the emperor, and he uses the language of honor. Uh, So 1 Peter is a writing that reflects Asia Minor. Written to uh, followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, written probably in the late first century, probably around eighty or ninety CE. The Christians he's writing to are from the exact same region where Pliny the Younger was dealing with Jesus' followers. He actually first Peter refers to Pontus, which is the same region that uh, Pliny the uh, Younger is ruling over, so it's somewhat contemporary with Pliny the Younger as well. The author reveals that some of the Christians he's writing to have faced social harassment and persecution of that sort. The author is trying to provide a sort of guidebook on how to lessen the tensions between the Jesus followers and others living in the city where they are. And it's in that context that he refers to this whole process of honoring the emperor. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verses 11 and twelve. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles, so he's using the language of them being foreigners in a figurative way to talk about the followers of Jesus here. "I, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So he's now advocated conduct among followers of Jesus that will be considered honorable conduct by other Greeks and Romans in the cities where they live. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor, as supreme, or of governors, as sent by him to punish those who do wrong, and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of the believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This whole advocating what behavior to engage in, to be considered acceptable by Greeks and Romans, finishes, has involved in it, the Emperor to begin with with the authorities but finishes off with the phrase honor the Emperor. This is advocating that followers of Jesus honor the Emperor in some way. Interesting. Interesting in light of the impression you might get from some other Christian literature. So far I've read examples of Christians advocating positive relations with Roman authorities. What's John's Apocalypse take on the Roman authorities? Different followers of Jesus who worship the Judean God, have different takes on what your attitude as a follower of Jesus should be towards the Roman imperial power, towards imperial officials, towards imperial activities in the cities where you live. And I'm pointing out to you that in Paul and Romans and in 1 Peter, there's, there's the language of participating to some degree positively in honoring the emperor, for example. But that an author like jo- the author of John's Apocalypse I don't think he would say, honor Babylon the whore, or honor the beast from the sea with seven heads who drinks the blood of the saints. It's the emperor. The beast from the sea in the John's Apocalypse it, it, that drinks the blood of the saints, that drinks the blood of Christians, is the emperor in the narrative of the visions. So this is quite different than saying honor the emperor, isn't it? in john's apocalypse the the example of a judean who follows jesus who thinks you should set yourself apart from the evil empire and shouldn't shouldn't definitely shouldn't honor the emperor that author also rails against other christians the the accusation that john the author of the apocalypse has against other christians is they engage in idolatry basically to him they're worshiping other gods what other christians are But in reality, they're not worshipping other gods. They're just participating in things that John characterizes as the equivalent of worshipping other gods. And one of the things they do is they eat food that has been previously offered to the Greek and Roman gods. Food that is sacrificed is partially consumed at the time. Sometimes the priests have a share in that food, and some of that meat ends up back in the marketplace. So you can encounter food sacrificed to the Greek and Roman gods in all kinds of contexts outside of an actual ritual that's honoring a god, or an emperor, or whatever it is. And so, John's Apocalypse criticizes other Christians who do feel, and Paul thinks you can to some degree too, who do feel you can participate in that aspect of cultural life. John's Apocalypse says that's not a right. So we're within the context of debates about what is acceptable or unacceptable relationship with surrounding society. Different Judeans who follow Jesus, and different gentiles who follow jesus have different answers on what degree of participation or non-participation is acceptable and one of the issues is to what degree can we honor the emperor to what degree should we honor Roman imperial officials to what degree are we supposed to be part of the honors cultural system with some saying no you can't do that and some saying yes you can do that and different answers being put forward same with Judean groups Different opinions on what degree of uh, participation is acceptable. Here's an honorary inscription set up by Judeans in a Judean association in Cyrenaica, which is in northern Africa. And here they're in the first century CE setting up an inscription very similar to the types of inscriptions you guys are familiar with set up by other associations for imperial authorities. Let me read it to you here. In the 55th year, on the 25th of Phaoth, at the assembly of the Feast of Tabernacles, so they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and gathered together, a Judean festival, during the the leadership of Cleandros, son of Stratonicus, Euphranor, etc., it's listing all the different rulers of this Judean association. And then it goes on to the honorary part of the inscription. Whereas Marcus Titius, son of Sextus, member of the amelia tribe, an excellent man, has since he arrived in the province over public affairs, performed his governorship over these affairs in a good and humane manner, and has always displayed a calm disposition in his behavior, he has shown himself to be non-burdensome, not only in these affairs, but also with the citizens who meet with him individually. Furthermore, in performing his governorship in a useful way for the Judeans of our polytuma, of our association, both individually and as a group, he never fails to live up to his noble rank. For these reasons, the leaders and the association of Judeans and Berenike decided to praise him, to crown him by name at each gathering and new moon with a crown of olive branches and ribbon, and to have the leaders engrave the decree on a plaque of parian stone, which is to be set up in the most prominent place in the amphitheater, all pebbles white, to show the results of the voting. So they, the vote was to put up this honorary inscription for this Roman imperial governor of the territory they're in. It's an association of Judeans you could almost interchange other inscriptions and just take out the Judeans and put in another another association in terms of the style uh, of the honors in terms of what they honored the person for it's a a group of Judeans honoring an imperial official you still have an honor system where you can honor someone as a human being, as a benefactor, without giving them sacrifices. And so you're on to a very important distinction. It's not an important distinction necessarily for the Greeks and Romans, but it's a very important distinction for these minority cultural groups that we're talking about now, for the Judeans and followers of Jesus. The distinction between honoring someone and giving them honors that are deserved of humans and honoring by sacrifice, and therefore acknowledging the deity status of the person who's being honored, or the, the God that's being honored. But remember, emperors fit into that category sometimes for the Greeks and Romans. That emperors are treated like gods and are received receive sacrifice. When 1 Peter says, honor the emperor, I don't think he says, give sacrifices to the emperor and treat him as God. I think he says honor the emperor in the same way you honor a Roman imperial official in the same way you would honor a civic benefactor locally. And so the honor language is there in both cases, but the sacrifice is what makes the difference. So here we're having a Judean group honoring a Roman imperial official, the equivalent of a Pliny the Younger, but in North Africa. So my point here is that you have a variety of opinions among minority cultural groups about what degree of involvement in society is acceptable or not acceptable, with some Judean groups openly setting up monuments in honor of Roman imperial governors, and uh, some Judean groups setting up honorary inscriptions for the emperors. What I would say to you is Judeans and Christians refrain from sacrifice for the gods, including refraining from sacrifice to the emperor as a god. So we were dealing mainly with honors for imperial officials and emperors that were non-cultic in, 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 sort of in their nature so far. We need to say some more now, though, of associations participating in honors for emperors when they do view them as gods. There's two main uh, sort of levels at which some associations, though not all, were fully participating within imperial cults in honoring the emperors as gods. On the one hand, you have those official imperial cults run by the province, for example, an official provincial imperial cult temple with a whole series of festivals organized and official functionaries in charge of it. Sometimes you have associations participating on occasion within that context, that uh, we have this inscription that the provincial assembly of all of the province of Asia. And that in this case, the Provincial Assembly was honoring the hymn singers for their participation in singing hymns to the imperial gods, to the emperors as gods, within an official provincial festival. Resolved by the Hellenes of Asia on the motion of G.I. and son of someone that we've lost the name of, Caesar-loving high priest of Asia and lifelong contest director of Goddess Roma, the city of Rome personified as a goddess, and god Augustus Caesar, Zeus Patroos, Augustus being identified with Zeus Patros. This, this same thing going on as we just saw in the other uh, inscription, combining gods, emperor and greatest high priest, father of the fatherland and of the whole hum- race of humankind. Since it is proper to offer a visible exhibition of piety and of every intention befitting the sacred to the Augustan household each year, The hymn singers from all Asia coming together in Pergamon for the most sacred birthday of Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, God, accomplish a magnificent work for the glory of the Synod, the association, singing hymns to the Augustan household, accomplishing sacrifices to the Augustan gods, again the Sebastoi, the same terms, leading festivals and banquets, and then the inscription breaks off, but it shows you their participation there more fully there. The other way in which you have far more evidence regarding the association's participation in honoring the emperors as gods is on the more informal level, within their own group life. The Nemetrius at Ephesus is a good example, right? The the devotees of Demeter that you read about and that you had the inscriptions in your reading. We have evidence that they have integrated the imperial family and imperial members of the imperial family within their ritual life over a span of time, not just evidence at one point, but actually over a span of time. We have that inscription from the time of Tiberius, from between 19 and 23 CE, that's partial. But nonetheless, the part we have mentions the fact that the devotees of Demeter, the Demetrius, have joined with civic institutions in honoring particular figures. And the figures they honor are priests and priestesses. And they list them. They say that they're honoring Basos, priest of Artemis, that they're honoring Servilia Secunda, that's a woman, priestess of Augusta Demeter Carpaphoros, and Proclos, a man, priest of the new Dioscoroi, sons of Drusus Caesar. Servilia Secunda is a priestess of Demeter, but a priestess of Demeter as representing the wife of Augustus. Augusta, Demeter Carpaphoros and here we have Demeter there the Demetrius own patron deity being identified with a member of the imperial family the other one that's mentioned explicitly there's the new Dioscoroi. The Dioscoroi are t- twin uh, gods that are frequently worshipped in various places but here they're identified with the sons of Drusus Caesar again a member of the imperial family so this is the sort of thing we already see in the early 1st century. Move forward to 88 or 89 CE. As usual with these associations, we, don't, we never have an ability to sort of walk through their life from year to year. Usually we only have one inscription from one association forever. Here's a case where we have more than one inscription, but there's you know, 60 years between them. But lo and behold, in 88 and 89 CE, we have even more clearly evident the integration of the emperors as gods within the ritual life, within the cultic life of this group. So that one's I. Ephesus 2.13. This one's a petition where the group of worshippers of Demeter, the same group presumably that we have just talked about, um, has hired a guy to be a diplomat for them, to go to the Roman governor of Asia to get recognition of the rites they engage in, including mysteries. And it turns out they, uh, these mysteries involve both Demeter Carpophoros, Demeter the Fruit Bearer, and the uh, Sebastoi gods, the Imperial gods, the emperors and imperial family as gods. Take a look at that one. To Lucius Mestrius Florus, Proconsul, Roman Governor of Asia, from Lucius Pompeius Apollonius of Ephesus. Mysteries and sacrifices. We're all familiar with what those are already now are performed each year in Ephesus, Lord, to Demeter Carpophoros, fruit-bearer, and Thesmophoros, law-bringer, and to the Augustan or Sebastoi gods, by initiates with great purity and lawful customs, together with the priestesses. In most years, these rites were protected by kings and emperors, as well as the proconsul of the period, as contained in their enclosed letters. So they sent along previous times where they had successful diplomacy with kings and and earlier, and now with imperial figures, and they enclose those letters showing how they've been recognized in the past. This is sort of prestige for them, isn't it? Accordingly, as the mysteries are pressing upon us during your time of office, through my agency the ones obligated to accomplish the mysteries necessarily petition you, Lord, in order that acknowledging their rights, and then we lose the rest of the inscription. But we've got enough here to recognize that the imperial gods, the Sebastoi, the Augustan gods, are quite thoroughly integrated here, right alongside their patron deity, that there's sacrifices and and initiations, mysteries, for both the patron deity and for the Augustan gods within this group. That at least illustrates both sides of it, The, the the few associations who might be prestigious enough to actually participate on an official scale, and then the more normal feature, and that is that the imperial gods could sometimes, or often even, be integrated within the lives of some associations, that there's a good number of associations that are fully participant within honors for the imperial gods, but that Judean groups and Jesus followers refrain from that element of participation, even though they participate in other forms of honors for the gods, like we saw last time.